Last week, I aimed to give you my root understanding of conscious capitalism, sharing a talk I gave to Europe where I tried to combine both conscious capitalism's fundamental framework together with practical tips and coaching for how to improve your business and improve your stock picking by recognizing such businesses. Well, this week, I'm going to take it one step further. Conscious capitalism as a framework should now be well known to you, to any fellow fool worldwide who's spent almost any time listening to this podcast, most particularly last week. But my guest authors this week, Raj Sisodia and Michael Gelb, are here to challenge us further. Think harder, reach higher. They say that business, yours, mine, the ones we're working on, the ones we're investing in, should be, you ready? Sources of healing. That's right, businesses of every kind, sources of healing. Healing organizations. This week on Rule Breaker Investing. This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Molecule. Molecule is reimagining the future of clean air, starting with the air purifier. For 10% off your first air purifier, visit molekule.com and enter the promo code FOOL10, FOOL10, at checkout. And thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Rule Breaker Investing. LinkedIn Jobs uses knowledge of both hard and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role the best. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash fool and get $50 off your first job post. linkedin.com slash fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Well, as I mentioned at the top, I'm joined by two authors this week, co-authors of the book The Healing Organization, my friends Raj Sisodia and Michael Gell, both gentlemen, both deep thinkers about business, successful doers of business, who advocate business may well be the very best source of healing available to us in the world today. Business done right, of course. Raj, great to have you in studio, and Michael over the phone. Raj, I'm going to go to you first. So, I want to start with a question of a skeptic. Now, I'm not a skeptic for the record, but I can imagine more than a few of my listeners from around the world might be. So, Raj, how can it be that business could be a source of healing in the world? Well, you know, there's a lot of hard-boiled eggs out there who feel they have to be skeptical and cynical about this. I could almost turn it around and say, why do you assume that business should be a source of suffering? Like, how did that become okay? You know? mm. But I think uh, if you think about business uh, and the role of business in a free market society, you know, governments are not supposed to take care of our needs. We create the conditions in which businesses spring up, sensing and meeting each other's our needs, right? So we have the opportunity, but also then the responsibility of taking care of each other through that mechanism of, of the free market. So when we serve each other and we take care of each other's real needs, that is actually a healing act if we lead from that energy of actually wanting to take care of each other. I think business is the greatest invention that we've created for us to care for each other at scale. And we have to keep that energy in the forefront. However, if we use other people, and view them as a way for us to achieve our personal goals, mm -hmm. then we end up using them and, and, and probably causing suffering, even though we may not intend to do so. You know, I would say you even say at the end of the book, Raj, um, quote, now more than ever, the purpose of business 
must be to alleviate suffering and elevate joy by serving the needs of all stakeholders, including employees, customers, communities, and the environment. So you're really going strong toward the purpose of business is to do those things. Yeah, I believe business is fundamentally about healing because it's fundamentally about uh, meeting people's real needs and taking care of people, right? And when you meet somebody's real need in any area that you choose, you're healing them in that dimension. Right? So I think if we, all of us do that in all the myriad ways in which we run our businesses and the things that we do, we're we are engaging in these uh, sort of uh, small acts of healing all the time when we do it that way. And that, that's going to result in, uh, in tremendous uh, alleviation of suffering. Unnecessary suffering is what this book is about removing. Right? There is a kind of suffering that can be noble from which we grow. You know, We can't remove all suffering from the world, obviously. But there's a lot of suffering that is unnecessary, and it's in us inflicting it on each other or even on ourselves from ignorance, right, from a, a sort of lower consciousness way of thinking. And we're definitely going to go towards some stories, some of your favorite stories from the book that, that illustrate this uh, for our listeners. But, Michael, let me welcome you in now. And you both quote Dickens from A Tale of Two Cities early in the book to talk about our age and which path we will take. And because I never get to quote Dickens enough on this podcast, I'm going to requote those famous lines that you have adduced in your book. And I quote, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, and it was the age of foolishness, small f. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going to heaven we were all going direct the other way. So, Michael, you and Raj are saying that business is both the cause and the solution of all the world's problems. Yes. So, maybe not so much even the cause as the exacerbator, but also the solution. We, we quote Dickens, and in the book, we also quote the great philosopher Homer, not uh, the Greek Homer, but actual Homer Simpson, <laughs> one of the great fools, capital F of all time. <laughs> and Homer says, uh, alcohol, the cause and solution of all the world's problems. Mm. Mm-hmm. And he's funny, but he doesn't have it quite right. It is, it is effectively business that either, if it doesn't cause problems like obesity or the opioid epidemic or gun violence or massive numbers of our citizens who are incarcerated or suicide rates in the United States of America being up 30% in the last 20 years, it certainly exacerbates those problems and it can also heal those problems, heal those issues by focusing purpose on something beyond just short-term self-aggrandizement, focusing beyond just the doctrine of shareholder value being the supreme guiding principle. And we're all obviously tuned into the fact that the Business Roundtable recently publicly recognized that we there must be a better way. And the healing organization goes into what that better way really can be. Mm. I guess using a word like healing, which you both, you gentlemen both do unabashedly. In fact, as Raj just said, what, is the purpose of business then to cause suffering? Um, So, we are here to heal, and I can accept that. It does imply that something is broken, that something 
is wounded, that something needs healing. Now, Michael, you just mentioned a number of bad things that have happened and do happen today in our world and businesses, you say, is at least exacerbating them, whether or not, in some cases, it might be causing them as a secondary point and not that important. But is it a natural state of humanity to be broken, to be wounded, and therefore, does business rush in to heal? This is the point of the wonderful Dickens quote that we shared earlier, which is that business has uplifted humanity, even unconscious capitalism. If you look at the last 250 years, the world is more prosperous. There are 250,000 people being lifted out of material poverty every single day. Amazing. And, and this is largely attributable to the effect of capitalism. So as Raj said earlier, this might be humanity's greatest idea, the idea that freedom and the rule of law and opportunity leads to prosperity. That's the genius of Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations. But as Raj and I emphasize, Smith also wrote the theory of moral sentiments. And that's the side of capitalism that is empathic, that's oriented towards its core purpose, which is healing. And when we say healing, let's define what we're talking about. The word healing means to restore to wholeness. So who doesn't want that? (laughs) And when business takes the view of concern for all its stakeholders, when we consider our communities, when we consider our employees, when we consider our customers, when we consider the environment, what Raj and others have demonstrated, they've really provided the data, we're going to return more to our shareholders. So that that's holistic, that's healing, that's an integrative approach, a wiser approach, and that's also what Adam Smith had in mind. Really well put, and I have to admit, I mean, I think I've read a little bit of The Wealth of Nations, but I've definitely not read, it was the theory of moral sentiment? Yeah, that came 17 years prior. Mm. And that expressed the human need to care. You know, and one of the ways I phrase it is that capitalism had a mother and a father, and they were both Adam Smith. And he articulated that father energy and the wealth of nations, which was about achievement, about freedom, about striving, about success. And he talked about our need to care, which is the mother energy. And as we often do in life, we ignore that or we take it for granted. And we strive, you know, to succeed in the world and, and achieve uh, uh, that that definition of success, and therefore we have kind of ignored. And we write in the book how capitalism and democracy evolved in the U.S. in a very hyper-masculine way. Each was missing that feminine energy, which is such an essential part of being human. Mm. But we have suppressed women and we have suppressed feminine energy for almost all of human history and just about every civilization, with a few exceptions. And that has caused enormous suffering. That is what has caused us to use each other, exploit each other, you know, hurt each other, enslave each other, damage each other in a, in a, in a hugely uh, destructive way. You know, human history is one of one war after another. Well, I really appreciate that point, Raj and Michael. You know, I, I read the book um, The Empathic Civilization by Jeremy Rifkin. He traces empathy. If that were a stock, he kind of shows the graph over time, and it kind of looks like the stock market itself. It starts mm-hmm. in the lower left corner centuries ago, and it goes high up into the upper right corner today. Now, we're not all the way up that journey, 
But it is a reminder that I think things today are better in many ways than they've ever been before. And it's in part for that reason, Raj, that our consciousness is now at a higher level and we can start looking higher than we ever could have dreamed a century ago. Yeah, absolutely. And the more we become conscious of that, the more actually we can accelerate on that journey. Right? Because we have, for most of human history, most human beings have lived on the edge of survival. And when you're there, you really can't really think about the long term. You really can't think about the impact on others because you're operating in that survival mode. But I think more and more of us, partly and maybe largely due to the rise of capitalism, are now able to think about life in a deeper, richer, more fully human way. And I think we can aspire to so much more. And that's really what our movement, as you well know, you're on the board of Conscious Capitalism and have been there nearly since the beginning. That's what that movement is about. And this, I think, is sort of, for both Michael and I, a logical progression of that way of thinking. Like, How do we take it even beyond what we've talked about as the pillars of Conscious Capitalism, mm. this idea of healing? All right, so I'm about to ask you each your favorite story, because your book, The Healing Organization, which is just out in the last month, your book is full of stories, stories of transformation and healing, companies large, companies small, from every industry, one story after another. I know you're both wonderful storytellers, so I'm going to ask you to be disciplined and think of your favorite story that you'd like to share. And Michael, I'm going to ask you to go first, especially because I know you are off to the Italian embassy very shortly, so you'll be dropping out of our podcast shortly, so that might be your last hurrah. But before we go to your favorite story, Michael, I do want to just briefly ask Raj, uh, this is something you've poked some fun at over the years. Maybe not fun, you're fairly serious, but at one point in the book, you do take a jab at a very influential author that I think most of us regard as a very good man, probably you too, but maybe he's been missing something. So, I'm thinking of Jim Collins, author of many works, but in particular here, Good to Great. Uh, You have the gall to subtitle a section in your book, and it reads this. It says, Good to Great isn't either. Raj, please explain. (laughs) Well, you know, as you said, Jim Collins obviously is a good man. He's done some wonderful work. I mean, I particularly admire Built to Last, the book that he wrote prior to uh, Good to Great, which was about companies that indeed last, you know, they stand the test of time. And they indeed had many of the qualities of what we call conscious companies. They had a purpose, you know, they had a social conscience, uh, and they, they sustained their performance over time. Good to great to me was a step backwards because, first of all, the definition of greatness was purely financial. If I recall, the criteria were companies that, after a period of average performance where they kind of matched the market, they entered into an extended period of outperformance by at least three to one over at least a 14-year period. Which we don't mind at all as investors on the show. We love to find these companies, although we'd like to hold them maybe for longer than that. Right. But you also want to look at how are they making the money, right? So, it's not just about the outcome. So, 11 companies made the cut based upon those two criteria, right? And that included some great companies, of course, but it also included Circuit City, which is gone now. And, you know, near the end, I think they did a whole bunch of very unconscious things like fire all their employees who were making anything above minimum wage in the stores just so they could cut costs, right, regardless of performance. So, nobody really misses Circuit City today. Uh, they had Walgreens in there, which is fine, but again, it, uh, nothing that you know, appeals you know, in terms of uh, what are they doing that's so extraordinary. But also Philip Morris, the world's largest tobacco company, was cited as a great company, right? Because obviously they were financially successful in that time period. But we have to say, you know, is the world a better place because of that company? When we look at the fact that six million people will die this year, these numbers from some years ago, maybe a billion people will die this century, and lifespan decreases by 15 years, 
and uh, public health systems spend hundreds of billions of dollars every year dealing with the consequences of tobacco. So that's your impact on the world. So when we talk about greatness, purely in terms of financial impact, we are ignoring all of the other impacts. So we say, mm. what is true greatness is a company that enhances our well-being in multiple dimensions. The world is a better place for it. So I think that is my main uh, criticism of that book, is how do you define greatness? And this word greatness, I think, has become corrupted. Because I think in order to be great, you must first be good. And I think we lost sight. We, have, we put goodness over here and we put greatness on the other side. And somehow greatness seems to appeal to this idea of being, you know, winning, uh, being number one, right? It seems to uh, address the ego and the sort of insatiable uh, thirst for uh, power and influence uh, and, and money. And I think that's, if you look at human history and all the empires and all the emperors who wanted to be called great, Right? That was their driving motivation because they wanted to be more powerful than anybody else. And the way they achieved that was through enormous suffering, through wars, through conquest, right? through killing people. And ultimately, all of that had no lasting legacy beyond the suffering because those things fall apart as soon as that emperor dies. So I think this idea of greatness you know, is, a, is a trap. I think we should aspire to goodness. And can the, the more good we can do, I think that should be the definition of greatness. Thank you. That was so eloquent. Now, we have Michael for about five minutes more. We'll see. Michael, I want to give you an opportunity to share in approximately five minutes your favorite story told in the healing organization. I'd be delighted to do that. And I'd also like to add to what Raj just shared about goodness, the importance of goodness, because we have a lot of people who engage in this wonderful podcast who are really interested in investing and they'd like to do good and they're ethical and they're thinking themselves as good people. So we all want to get a good return on our actual investments. And it's really important to emphasize that the companies that Raj and his co-authors highlighted in firms of endearment have outperformed the good to great companies in Jim Collins's book. So purely on a financial basis, over the longer period, goodness is a better investment. So that's just just important to emphasize, since we have lots of investors who you we're bet. talking to. You bet. Uh, you're going to make more money while making the world a better place. And this, this is the real point of the book, is to help people imagine a world in which business makes human flourishing its first priority. That was Adam Smith's vision. That's the vision of conscious capitalism. That's the vision of the healing organization. This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Molecule. Molecule, with a K, is reimagining the future of clean air, starting with its air purifier. Molecule's technology has been personally effective, verified by science, but most importantly, it's been tested by real people. Molecule has given allergy and asthma sufferers around the country an all-new experience. Breakthrough PECO-PICO technology across a range of products provides a solution for the entire home when it comes to air purification, no matter the size of your room. You can choose the option that's best for your space, whether that be the Molecule Air for large rooms or the Molecule Air Mini for smaller rooms. 
Though molecules reinvented the air purifier, it doesn't just collect air pollutants, it destroys them on a molecular level. This includes viruses, bacteria, gaseous chemicals, and mold. When you turn on molecule, you're creating the purest air possible, combating allergy season by destroying allergens in the home. And I quote, these devices are so good that a bunch of people here at The Motley Fool have bought them. Some have even bought more than one. End quote. That would include me, by the way. I bought one. For 10% off your first air purifier, visit molekule.com, enter the promo code FOOL10FOOL10 at checkout. That's molecule.com with a K, promo code FOOL10. My favorite story, I love them all, which is your favorite child, but <laughs> one I'll share, it's the story about Hillman Consulting. And it's, thank you for poisoning my microscope. And the name of the story comes from Chris Hillman, the namesake of Hillman Consulting. 30 years ago or so, he was a young engineer. He was working to assess asbestos levels in a school, and he found that they were dangerous. So he wrote his report. And the company he was working for at the time didn't share the kinds of sentiments that we are discussing today. So he was offered a few thousand dollars to change his report. Mm. Chris, Chris said, wait a minute, you want me to accept money to poison school children? He said, I quit. But being, you know, he's a person of such integrity, he felt he still had to give two weeks notice. So he was continuing to work for two weeks before his resignation would come into effect. And one day he was going to look at a sample in his microscope. And fortunately, before he put his eyes on the oculars, he noticed that someone had put dispersion fluid that would have burned his eyes to punish him for not going along with Heavens. the bride. Mm. So he walked out that moment and he started Hillman, Hillman Consulting. And they do wonderful work anyway. They have a noble purpose. They make safer environments, safer buildings. They do air quality analysis. They help in the remediation of mold and other toxins, asbestos. So over the years, just because he's a good person, he built this good company and treated his employees really well and gives lots of money to his community. I began working with him and his company four years ago. I led their strategic planning program for them. And we redefine their vision and their mission and their values to be consciously conscious and consciously good. And this has generated tremendous enthusiasm in the company. And Chris says, sales are going up because now he does what he calls the culture sale. He tells them not just here's what we do, but here's why we do it. And here's our higher purpose. And they've been named to one of America's great places to work. They, their growth is up. Their profits are up significantly. So this past strategic planning session, I work with them every year. Mm -hmm. Raj came in, and together we introduced the idea of a healing organization to them, even before the book came out. And Chris stood up at the strategic planning meetings that I officially proclaimed that we are a healing organization. We do what we do because we want to make the world a better place. And profit is part of what we do. 
Now, here's a guy who could just sell his company and live on a yacht for the rest of his life, but he loves the idea of helping communities, providing great employment for people, making the world a better place. So here's where the story gets even better. The Healing Organization book comes out, and one of the people who's mentioned in it is a Hillman employee who has just opened their Northern California office. Her name is Stephanie Cesaria. So Stephanie wrote to me just two weeks ago. She said, I just read The Healing Organization, and this book speaks directly to my heart. She said, I just took over our Northern California office, and I was on my way to a meeting with a client. She said, and I really had to step over the bodies of all the homeless people on my way to the meeting. Mm. And I just felt in the depths of my conscience that this is not okay. And that Hillman Consulting is going to lead the way with a consortium of other businesses to help transform and heal this, this problem in, in, in our community. So here's somebody who's already conscious, aspiring to healing, and then taking it to the next level. And there's a whole stream of stories and people who are already good people, already want to be conscious, already want to make the world a better place, but they need to know that they're not alone. They need to know that there's a playbook, that there's guidance, that there's positive examples. And that's, that's Hillman. That's why Hillman is my favorite story because just good people doing great things. Mm. Well, Michael, thank you for sharing that. I'm going to bid you adieu. Would you like to tell our audience what you're about to do later this evening? We're taping, by the way, on Tuesday, the 22nd of October. So in honor of the 500-year life of Leonardo da Vinci, 500 years ago that he lived, my wife, Deborah, who is a world-class mezzo-soprano, and I are going to be celebrating this at the Italian embassy. I'm going to speak about how to think like Leonardo da Vinci, seven steps to genius every day. Deborah's going to sing. And then we're going to drink some great Italian wine. So <laughs> <laughs> it'd be a fabulous event. It's so great to be with you. Ciao. Arrivederci. See you soon. Thank you, Michael. That's one of the better exits ever made from this podcast. And <laughs> we're always poorer for any exit, but we're very rich, Raj, to have you throughout the rest of this conversation. So let me now turn to you. I'm not going to say you're going to top Michael's effort because that's probably hard. And you guys are healers, not yes. competitors, exactly. are you? No. <laughs> Raj, what is your favorite story from the healing organization? Well, you know, my test of a great story, and this happened numerous times in this book, is the one that moves you to tears. And tears of empathy, uh, but ultimately tears of joy. Hmm. And there were many such stories in this book, from an electric utility uh, in Detroit to a uh, bakery in Yonkers uh, to a uh, call center company called Apple Tree Answers and many, many others. But I would have to say the one that touched me most deeply is called Jaipur Rugs. And uh, this is a company that is based in the city of Jaipur in India Mm -hmm. and was started by a man named Nandikishore Chaudhary who is now known as the Gandhi of the carpet industry. And the reason he got into this business was he understood that the people who produce these beautiful carpets, this is an ancient art form that has been handed down from generation to generation. But in India, many things happen in different castes, right? It's sort of a hereditary kind of an occupation. So there's a weaver class. And uh, people are born into that. And most of these carpets, because they require such fine work, are made by women. I would say 80 to 90% of the workers are women. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, this is one of those castes that is considered untouchable. And this is one of the worst things about India, 
which is this idea that some people are born into a life where they are going to be regarded by other people as being untouchable. In other words, other people would feel themselves to be soiled just mm. to touch them. Mm. And some people feel soiled even to just look at them, right? So imagine what that kind of existence is. And in the past, there was no way out of that. Today, there are more opportunities, uh, fortunately, in India for people to get out of that. But it has been and still remains for many people sort of a constraint and a sort of a prison that they cannot escape. So <clears throat> imagine now being born a girl into an untouchable family. So you're now the lowest of the low in that society because the boys get fed first. They get educated, if at all. Right? If there's anything left over, then the girls are able to eat and get uh, nutrition and get some education. But often that doesn't happen. And so they are deprived on both those fronts. And then soon, at an early age, uh, instead of going to school, uh, they end up looking after their siblings and they end up uh, helping with housework. And at, when they are in their early teens, they start having to make carpets. They're put to work. And then a few years later, they're married <clears throat> in an arranged marriage to another weaver family where they're expected to do all of those things and have children, right? and cook and clean for the uh, for the household, as I said, and continue to make carpets and bring in income, mm. where they find themselves exploited by the contractors who bring in these contracts and will tell them, okay, we need to have, uh, they bring the design and they bring the yarn and say, okay, we need within 90 days this carpet to be made. This is what we're going to pay you. And then at the end of that period, they may or may not pay them or they don't pay them on time or they will uh, subtract a large amount of that money by just pointing out one or two blemishes. Uh, in the carpet, and there's other forms of abuse as well that those women are subjected to. Their lives are pretty hellish. Mm, it sounds as if there could be <clears throat> some healing. Yeah, I mean, their life is just unending suffering. And Nanda Kishore Chaudhary says these women are the innocents. They have never hurt anybody, and they have never asked for anything from anybody. All they do is work and they serve. And I want to serve them, and I want to make their lives better. So he created a company where the first priority is the well-being of the of the weavers and making sure that not only are they paid well, they're paid on time, but they're treated with respect and dignity, and they are given a hand up. So they are educated. There's a foundation that actually uh, gives you know, literacy, uh, reading, writing, arithmetic, and even basic accounting skills. And they try to make them into somewhat entrepreneurial, uh, not just weavers, but actually they can take charge of a loom, they can hire other women, they can expand their... Uh, work within the context of this company. And I met one of these women. Her name was Shanti. Or her name is Shanti. And uh, she's been involved in carpet. She's probably about 55 years old, but she's been doing this for 40 years probably at this point. But she's been involved with this company for the last 10 or so years. And before that, her life was what I just described. She had five children. She almost came on the verge of starvation. She was abused. Uh, many times she had to sell her own jewelry sometimes to pay her workers because the contractors didn't pay her. And then she was discovered by Jaipur Rugs, and she became part of that family. And if you look at her today, her life is completely transformed. You know, when I met her uh, last July, you know, she said that if you met me some years ago, I would not even be able to look at you. I would be sitting on the floor uh, with my head covered. And today she walked up to me and she shook my hand and said, how are you in English? Mm. Uh, I was told that uh, Paul Pullman, the CEO of Unilever, had been in her home a few weeks prior, and she had cooked a meal, and he sat down on the floor and ate with her family. That's how far she has come. And now she runs uh, four looms, and there are 20 women who work with her. She has five children, four girls and a boy. Uh, the oldest has already graduated from college. The second one is in 11th. There's one in 10th, one in 9th. And there's a young, uh, the, the youngest is a boy who is in uh, seventh grade. Right. So there are five kids from this formerly illiterate woman who are now going to graduate from college. And her life and the life of her children and their children 
has been transformed because this company saw this need for healing in that. And I asked her, how do you feel about Mr. Chaudhary? And they call him Bhai Sahib, like older brother. And she couldn't talk for a few minutes. She just started crying. And she said, I don't even have words. She said, he is to me much more than my mother and father because he gave me life. To me, he is God. Before I met him, I didn't have a life. Mm. So I was just trying to exist, and it was suffering you know, all the time. And now I actually have a life, and she's filled with joy and laughter and, and lightness. So that is the power of a healing business. And now there are 40,000 women working and uh, you know, making carpets in this company, and their lives are transformed, and therefore their families and their children's lives are transformed. So to me, that was the most moving example of what— and these are for-profit businesses. We, we were very careful, even though a healing organization can be a nonprofit too. Certainly. But we wanted to emphasize that business can do this. You don't have to start a nonprofit to be a force of healing because too often our nonprofits are there to clean up the mess left behind by businesses. If all businesses operated as, as healing organizations, we wouldn't need— most of the nonprofits that exist out there. That's fascinating. They're, they're, they're there to deal with the consequences of how we work. Mm, what a wonderful and moving example. Again, your book has many stories, so it really gives it short shrift. We're just a podcast, though I can only fit so much, but short shrift just to allow you and Michael each to tell your favorite story. You know, before we press on, Raj, you and I last week were at the Conscious Capitalism Summit once again in Austin, Texas. And I was thinking of last year's summit, not this one, because the MC that was with us those several days, I think it was Magat Wade, who is a female entrepreneur born in Senegal, and she started the whole summit by saying, for a lot of you, capitalism might be a way to make money, but for someone like me, who was born in Senegal, capitalism was my only hope. So, for a lot of people, I think like Jaipur Rugs is another good example, it's actually their only hope. And Often, in the developed world, we take for granted that just businesses are around, and some of them are good, and some of them are bad. But in lots of places in the world, maybe the majority of the world today, Raj, it would be a small miracle for a good healing organization that is a for-profit entity to show up and save people. Yes, it is, because businesses don't have as prominent a role in many societies, and many of them are further behind in consciousness as well. You know, they're kind of emulating the old American model of business, you know, which was profit uh, uh, shareholder value or profit-centered and short-term in nature, very financially oriented and very short-term. And one of the interesting things about a place like India is that there's, there's a lot of ancient wisdom that a lot of people have become disconnected from. But if you go back and look at uh, what the uh, ancient and that's true not only from the Indian tradition but many traditions around the world, that those lessons about how we should think about leadership, how we think about work, how we think about business, all of those actually do exist in many wisdom traditions. And that was brought home to me when I wrote my book, Firms of Endearment. And one of my professors in Bombay, who I gave it to, once he read it, he said, you know, I'm really enjoying your book, but as I read it, I realize it's nothing new. And I said, what do you mean? For me, this was radically different from everything I had been taught in business school. Right? <laughs> and he said, yeah, everything you're writing here was written 4,000 years ago. It's all there in the Gita. And the Gita is one of India's uh, ancient uh, sacred texts. Mm -hmm. right? And I had never read that. Nobody ever told me to read the Gita. I had no connection to the ancient wisdom. And so after that, I started to read not only the Gita, but also wisdom from other traditions, the Judaic tradition, the uh, Sufi tradition, right? certainly Buddhist tradition, Christian tradition, etc. There's a lot uh, there that you know, we've kind of uh, detached from or we have compartmentalized. So that applies to your home life, and this applies to our work life. I think it's all one life. And we need to bring the same principles and the same ethics uh, to bear in both aspects of life. 
All right. Well, we're about to enter the home stretch. I've saved up. I don't know. Maybe my best stuff for last. But first, hiring isn't as simple as putting an ad in the paper or posting to a job board. When you're juggling hiring with everything it takes to grow your business here in the year 2019, it's important that you reach the right candidates at the right time. And that's where LinkedIn comes in. Right here at the Motley Fool, we have used LinkedIn in search of qualified candidates for years. Over 600 million members visit LinkedIn to make connections, learn and grow as professionals, discover new job opportunities. That's how they make sure your job post gets in front of people. With the right hard skills and the right soft skills to meet your role requirements, and more than 35 million job seekers visit LinkedIn Jobs every month. To get $50 off your first job post, go to LinkedIn.com/fool. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's LinkedIn.com/fool. $50 off your first job post. So, Raj, in the final phase of our interview. I'm sure a lot of us now have been moved. I hope maybe had our consciousness raised a little bit by the time we've spent together. But we might still be wondering what exactly is a healing organization. The title of your book. So there are three core principles of healing organizations, and I want to make sure that we cover each. So maybe five minutes or so. Give me some storytelling and some thinking, and maybe ways to think better for my own business for each of these. So the first one. And I'm just going to quote the book. Very simple. Core principle number one of being a healing organization: assume the moral responsibility to prevent and alleviate unnecessary suffering. Yes, I think this is key.、Uh, and one of the ways I've started to phrase it now—it's、uh, not in the book, but、uh, the language that I'm using now—is that there are two things that are hiding or hidden or locked away in the corporate closet that are not allowed to come into the open. The first is unexpressed love and care. We human beings, as we talked earlier, have a need to care. It is as powerful as our drive for self-interest, and any parent can identify with that. But even otherwise, we can identify with that. There are things that we are willing to sacrifice and 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 put and take great risks for, right? So we are wired to care, and unfortunately, most business places are not hospitable to that. They essentially want us to put on our mask and armor and come to work and go to battle and win in the marketplace. You know, we kind of think about business almost like a jungle or a warfare.、Right? Mm. All of our language is suffused with that, and so people feel they don't feel like they have the permission to actually show caring. Somehow, that is seen as a sign of weakness. So there's all this pent-up、uh, desire for human beings to express their care. And organizations can either amplify that or suppress that, and most of them suppress that. The way I think about it is that、uh, love that is not expressed is like a check that is never cashed. It doesn't do any good for anybody.、Mm. So it needs to find expression, right? So that's been locked away. But the other thing that's locked away is silent suffering. You know, if we could put a thought bubble over the head of everybody that we have in our offices and really understand what's going on in their lives, what their challenges that they are dealing with, right? They might have a mother with Alzheimer's. They might have a a child addicted to opioids. You know, they might have all kinds of. I mean, there's a You know, million different things that people struggle with. As I say, life is difficult in and of itself. And then on top of that, we in most workplaces create environments where people are subjected to enormous stress, where heart attacks are higher on Mondays. Right, where 120,000 Americans die every year due to work-related stress, where 17,000 Chinese die every day 
because of overwork. And you said heart attacks appear most frequently on Mondays? Yes, it's about 20% higher on Mondays. Hmm. So there are all these things. So people, life is difficult enough, and then we add to it. So there's all this suffering. So silent suffering and unexpressed love are both locked away in the corporate closet. I think what we need to do as leaders is to open that and allow that love to to bomb and you know to to serve as a bomb to that suffering and that's going to heal both the giver and the receiver and in some cases i might be the giver you might be the receiver and for something else it might be the opposite right and people heal when they receive that and people heal when they give that and people heal when they observe that in somebody else one of our speakers was ramon right he talked about the poverty alleviation program that FIFCO did in Costa Rica. Ramon Mandiola at last week's summit. He was a keynote speaker. And they found out that a certain percentage of the people, despite being well paid by Costa Rican standards, are still living in extreme poverty. And they decided they're going to actually not rest until each and every family was lifted out of that. So about 3.5% of the people were directly impacted by that. But 97% of people observed that. And their uh, engagement scores went up by about 12% in one year. Gallup had never seen such an increase, but people really saw what this company stood for, right? So what you do is you create the conditions in which suffering not only is okay for people to share, right? But then so is your ability to do something about it. So those forces, in a way, are liberated. And it's almost like the leader, you know, creates the conditions. It's not like the leader has to solve all of those problems. We create the conditions where people are going to do that for each other. And the company can engage its creative efforts in order to alleviate more and more suffering, over time. And when you do that, when you replace suffering with joy, you alleviate the suffering and you elevate joy. And I think that's ultimately what, what this is about. Mm. Yeah, Ramon Mendiola, his company is FIFCO. It is a Costa Rican company. And as you mentioned, Raj, he his consciousness raised to such a level that he decided we shouldn't have anybody at this company who is in extreme poverty. And somewhere, as you mentioned, three and a half percent, he told a great story of healing frankly, yeah. uh, at last week's summit, and, and there were many others. And a lot of them featured in your book, as, as Ramon is as well. So, thank you for covering that first core principle, Raj. The second core principle that you and Michael put out for healing organizations, this one I'm going to have a little bit of a bone to pick with, but mm-hmm. I think we'll both understand each other. You assert that core principle number two is, recognize that employees are your first stakeholders. So I read that, and I have to admit, I walk around our office often saying, all of our stakeholders matter. So in the end, it's kind of a bunch of ties, and tie goes to this or that. But I always think that the purpose of a business is to serve customers. Otherwise, the business wouldn't exist. So I would have said that um, customers first. I realize a lot of employee abuse can happen if you have a customer's purely first mentality. But anyway, Raj, just to get back to your principle, you say recognize that employees are your first stakeholders. Yeah, so I think, I mean, this is a debate we often have in conscious capitalism, right? Of course, all stakeholders matter. And I like the way Doug Rao frames it in terms of customers and employees. Most people would put those two up near the top. The former president of Trader Joe's, Doug Rao. Yes, who was our CEO of Conscious Capitalism, Inc., for a number of years. And he said they're like the wings of a bird. Right, customers and employees are the are like the wings of a bird, and without one of those wings, you know, you don't you don't really fly very well. Right? <laughs> I but agree. I think what we mean here is that you know, healing needs to begin at home. You can't give what you don't have. And if you're not focusing on the well-being of the people whose lives are most greatly impacted and who have the most invested, more than investors, actually employees have a lot more invested in the company, right? And you know they're spending most of their waking hours there. They are being impacted physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and socially by what goes on at work. 
not only are they being impacted, their children are being impacted, their relationships are being impacted. All of that is a consequence of the experience that they have at work. And unless we heal that, everything else that we may try to do, we may try to do wonderful things for customers. And I think there are many companies where I would say there's kind of a tyranny of the customer when we say things like the customer is always right. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, customers are not always I right. I certainly right? agree with that. <laughs> right? So we have to look at our employees and the fact that you know their lives are going to be impacted so much by us and not only them, like some of the companies that we have in the book, like JBN Consulting out of Atlanta, they not only treat the employee as extremely important stakeholder and perhaps the most important, and but also mm-hmm. the children of those employees. The children of the employees, are also considered, stakeholders. Are considered stakeholders. And some of these companies go as far to, as to have families evaluate them annually, right? To say, how are we doing? How are we, you know, how are wow. we impacting your lives? I love right? that idea. Uh, there's another company called Menlo Innovations in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, right? Which also is all about joy. And they started a practice some years ago somewhat accidentally of, not only allowing people to bring their babies to work, but actually making that a practice. Right? So 26 babies have grown up in that office, right? And it's created a workplace of joy. Mm. So I think that's the spirit in which we say that, not to denigrate other stakeholders, but to say that healing must begin at home, right? And if you don't do that, then nothing else ultimately will be truly able to heal because you're going to ask people to give something they don't have. And you need to make sure that they're okay. You know, you have to operate, you have to fill, you have to fill your cup before you can start filling other cups. Yeah, put on your oxygen mask <laughs> exactly. first, and I understand. Exactly. And I, I certainly get that. And it is also true for most businesses, not every, but the vast majority, you're paying your employees far more than any single customer is right. paying you. So, right. if you do the math of it, it probably makes sense. So, oh, yeah. I like yes. Doug Rouse two wings of a bird anyway, because right. they count for almost everything together. But that would itself be a misnomer, right, Raj? Mm-hmm. Because it's not just two stakeholder groups. It's your partners and suppliers. It's yes. the earth in some cases, or your community. Yeah, and I think communities, the planet, the environment. I mean, that's becoming really more and more urgent now as a as a stakeholder to think about. And I've actually also started saying society is the ultimate stakeholder. You know, we have to be on the right side of society. We cannot be adding to the problems in the world. We need to be part of the solution. Every single business needs to be part of alleviating challenges that we face at a societal level as well. And when we do it in our micro context at work, but we also have interfaces in multiple ways with communities and with society, and we need to make sure that we're having a positive impact. You know, I talk about having business uh, be done with a spectrum of positive effects because we create or we, we, we can destroy at least eight kinds of wealth through our businesses. And traditional businesses have always said, we're about profit maximization, and everything else, therefore, is a side effect. And unfortunately, side effects tend to be negative. And what we say is there's no such thing called a side effect. You do things, and these are the effects. Mm. And just because you put it in fine print or say it really fast doesn't make it less important. <laughs> it could be the most significant outcome from your action. So we do things, and their effects. Can we do business with a spectrum of positive effects? Can we create financial uh, intellectual, social, emotional, spiritual, physical, ecological, and cultural well-being through our business. And it can be done. We know that it's possible because it does exist. There are companies doing it. And you do a great job highlighting them in the healing organization. Well, the third and final core principle, and I feel like you don't have to speak to this one as long because I feel like the whole hour or so has been about this, but your third and final core principle to be a healing organization is and I quote, define, communicate, and live by a healing, capital H, purpose, capital P. Yes, and I think this is now what gets to the uh, external world, right? We talked about treating your employees and making sure you're a place of healing. So the way we say it is that your business should be a place of healing for those who work there. 
it should be a source of healing for those it serves, uh, customers, communities, and others, right? And it should be a force for healing in society. And so this is really getting at the idea of that this is a source of healing, right? That our purpose itself for all the, uh, the uh, stakeholders that it impacts, primarily customers, but others as well, is actually going to be a healing purpose. And this actually is the origin of this book. I was using healing, the word healing, as an acronym for the qualities of a great purpose, which are heroic, evolving, uh, aligning, uh, loving, inspiring, natural, and galvanizing. Now, I think we've changed that a little bit. We've changed galvanizing to grounded, right, et cetera. But it's essentially similar, yeah. right? And so those are the qualities of a great purpose. And then as I thought about it deeper, I said, actually, that is more than just an acronym for the qualities of a great purpose. That is actually is the reason for the business to exist internally and externally, to be a force of healing and a source of healing and a place of healing. Wonderful. Raj, just for the fun of it, can you, can you repeat because I know you love acronyms, and this yes. is just one example. You have many in your books. They're mnemonics, yes. right? Yes. It helps us remember, helps you remember. But could you say each of those seven words, grounded being the final one in the book yeah. anyway, yeah. although galvanizing is great too, just so mm-hmm. my listeners can hear those seven again in order? Yes. So the first is heroic. Every great purpose is a heroic purpose. It's trying to do something that is not easy to do, but is important and is worth doing. Uh, it evolves. It evolves as the world changes, as society changes, as the business evolves. The purpose can also evolve. And the third is actionable. So the purpose is not just pretty words uh, on a wall, but actually has consequences in terms of how we make decisions and what we do uh, daily. Uh, The fourth is loving. The purpose has to be rooted in love and care for people, but beyond that, for for the planet, for all living uh, things on this planet. Uh, It is inspiring. That's one of the most critical elements. So when, when you have a purpose that's inspiring, it actually then aligns all of the stakeholders together. Now you're no longer literally operating at cross-purposes because you have a shared purpose, because it's inspiring everybody. So everybody connected to that business. So when you're Whole Foods, your suppliers believe in what you're trying to do, which is to educate people about, uh, about what they put into their body makes a difference to their health and the health of the food system and the health of the planet. Your customers obviously come to you for that. Your employees are passionate about that. That's why they choose to work there. Investors put money into that company because they want to see that happen and they want people's lives to be improved in that way, etc. So everybody is now on the same side of the table, right? Mm. You have a shared purpose. If you don't have that, you're literally at cross purposes because you're now saying investors care about maximum profit, employees therefore care about maximum pay and minimum work, customers care about lowest price, suppliers care about highest margin, society wants highest taxes. Everybody becomes a taker when you don't have that mm. uh, that inspiring purpose. Uh, then it's natural, it's rooted in, uh, it's in harmony with nature, and it is natural for this business to have that purpose. Right? It's not out of left field. Right? It's not saying we're a bank and we're about the forests, right? or whatever it might be. And the last is grounded. It's grounded in the practical realities uh, of the marketplace that we operate in. I do want to put in a quick word for shareholders, because at least within conscious capitalism, it's natural to say it's not about shareholder maximization, because that's maybe where we came from in so many cases. But we still want to put in a word for the importance of good returns. I think it's hard to be integrated and successful and sustainable unless you are, in fact, a profit-making enterprise. Absolutely. And the evidence shows that these companies actually generate, even though they are not profit-maximizing, that's not their objective function. Mm -hmm. That's not what they're about. They're trying to achieve their purpose and do it in a way that that includes uh, all of the stakeholders and their well-being. These companies are actually more successful and they're more profitable. And the way I say it is that profit is a social good. And it is socially irresponsible not to be profitable because a free society doesn't function without corporate profits. 
right? Governments don't create wealth. They can only tax and spend the wealth created by private enterprise, right? And therefore, if we don't have profitable businesses, we don't have infrastructure, we don't have public education, public health, whatever we care about collectively in society, that doesn't happen, right, unless businesses make profits. And conscious businesses make very healthy profits, but it matters how you make the money. Mm, it sure does. Not just for companies, but every single person in life. I often ask, how did that person make their money? And it's a really important answer, whatever the answer is. You know, another analogy I just want to throw out there before a special closing moment for this podcast is the analogy to people who are after happiness. And whenever you hear somebody's trying to be happy, it's unlikely that they find it in most cases. It's instead by serving others adding meaning by adding value to other people's lives. That's what makes us happy, and it's the same thing for companies that seek profit as an end. They tend to not really find it or get it. It's when they serve a higher purpose that the profit, ironically, maximizes. Yes, and that's actually, uh, to me, straight out of Viktor Frankl, right? Viktor Frankl, man's search for meaning, where he said happiness, people do want to be happy, and that's worthy, but happiness cannot be pursued, happiness ensues. It is the outcome of living a life of meaning and purpose, and that comes from doing work that matters. It comes from loving without condition, because that's who we are. We're, you know, that defines us. And it comes from finding meaning in our suffering. And of course, those ideas can be directly applied. You could change the name of that book to the Corporation Search for Meaning, and you could change the word "profit" uh, for happiness to "profit." Hmm. The same thing applies, right? Profit cannot be pursued; profit ensues. It is the outcome of a business that is working towards a higher purpose. Right, a business that is built on love and care, and a business that grows through adversity. It was the same exact ideas. It's one of those objectives that is best pursued obliquely, not directly. Thank you for reminding me of Frankel and his work, and that I was um, unconsciously channeling that, quoting yeah, that, because no, you're right, it's straight, yeah. and that's an amazing book on its own. Well, for anybody who's getting to know Raj Sisodia for the first time, and Michael Gelb, his co-author as well, I'm delighted to have shared them with you today. I hope that this has been, without overstating it, transformative for some of you as you think about your own business or where you want to put your money as an investor. And Raj, uh, not just the movement itself, conscious capitalism, but you personally have added a lot of value to my life and to the life of The Motley Fool. And I'm delighted to have somehow found you and been connected with you for 10 years. And it's really a pleasure to share you with so many of my friends listening today. I do want to mention, this is not Raj's first appearance on Rule Breaker Investing. He was, I just checked, May 2nd, 2018, talking some about conscious capitalism. So, if you cannot get enough of this co-author of The Healing Organization, feel free to go back into our Rule Breaker Investing archives. You can just Google it and hear more from Raj. Well, Raj, you all close your book in the epilogue with The Healing Organization Oath. You say, we see this book as part of a movement to change the world of business and make it about love and healing instead of fear and survival. You go on, if you'd like to be a part of this movement, begin by taking The Healing Organization Oath. And that's what I'm going to do right here to end the podcast. And thank you for this. I'm so delighted to be able to put my left hand on my heart, which you asked me to do, here and raise my right hand and proclaim. And here I go. Primum non nocere. First, do no harm. I will operate my business in a way that causes no harm to others or to the earth. Malus eradicari. Root out evil. I will never enable or collude with abuse or exploitation. I will be an everyday hero who stands up for fairness, truth, beauty, integrity, and basic goodness. 
Finally, Amor Winkit Omnia. Love conquers all. I will operate from love. I will measure success by the fulfillment, abundance, and joy I generate for others. Amen. Thank you. Thank wow. you. Thank you, you, Raj. And you had witnesses here. <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of witnesses, far more than I had in my own, for example, marriage ceremony where I swore another oath, uh, arguably as or more important. But um, Thank you. Thank you, David. Yes. That's, that means a lot to us. Thank you very much. And this is uh, available on page 235 of Raj and Michael's book, The Healing Organization. If you're moved to make it all the way through, I hope you will. You'll find that oath. And I think that the more businesses and organizations, for-profit and not-for-profit, that can raise their hand and say that in front of their employees or the world at large, all of their stakeholders, the better this world gets. So, Raj, I want to thank you and Michael again for being with me this week on Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you for having us. You know, it's really, I think the world is a much better place because you and Tom started this wonderful company. Thank you. Well, thank you again to Raj and to Michael for sharing their wisdom. I hope this changed how you think about business. I hope you realized you can do better, I can do better. And that's whether we're in business or whether we're investing in business because it's all connected. I learned this from Raj everything is connected. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.